Good evening, everyone. It's good to be here again, and I trust that we've come with anticipation and we want to uh, uh, see what God has for us this evening. Not quite sure as I look out across, I'm seeing more and more familiar faces. I don't have names for all of you, and you'll have to forgive me for that. And uh, not sure if the uh, element of surprise helps stage fright or the element of, uh, of uh, knowing someone's face and recognize them helps. There's uh, uh, potential issues with both sides. <clears throat> Tonight, I want to look at the church as the fruitful garden. And I trust that uh, God will bless us as we look at some of the thoughts as it pertains to gardening. <clears throat> I want to be looking at this uh, about personal fruitfulness, fruitfulness in my own life, in your own life. And then I also want us to be looking at it somewhat in a corporate way. Uh, how can we prosper? How can our churches be growing fruit and and uh, and having good harvests in our gardens as we sow the word and sow the good seed. Our family in Kansas, we live out in the country. Uh, it's a rural area there. Uh, your your uh, population here, your density is significantly different than it is there. Our closest neighbors are probably around a mile away. Land is laid out in square miles. Where we are, there's actually two square miles that are together, and we are the house on that two square mile piece. Uh, if somebody goes by, we're pretty apt to know who it is and maybe what they're doing. I don't know, but it's not unusual. Okay, that's the mailman, and here's a neighbor John checking things out, and uh, there's Hal Ramsey going to look at his cattle or something. We like to plant a garden, and uh, this garden provides fruits and vegetables for our family. On the farm, we usually grow some uh, either alfalfa hay, wheat, uh, sometimes other crops. You know, there's a special joy involved in, in, a, in a successful harvest. Those of you that are farmers uh, are well aware of that. There's something that is, is, is just fulfilling and is satisfying about being involved in a harvest where you have God has blessed, the rain has fallen, uh, the crops filled out, the frost didn't come at the wrong times, and everything is coming together. You know, in many ways, we are so dependent in the natural world on God's blessing to have a good harvest. I was just talking with someone that I met for coffee today, and he was talking about how good a year last year was for them. It's kind of humbling. It was mostly because of the weather, he said, and it wasn't like his, their management was that astute, but realizing that it was, a part, it was God's blessing that made them be able to have a good year on the farm. <clears throat> you know, the Bible speaks much of seed and the bringing forth of fruit. I'm going to look like I said, at the church as a fruitful garden. For a first reference, I want to look at John 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Uh, Aaron, I'm looking at you. I want you to help me. What happens with a kernel of wheat, you're a farmer, aren't you, or had been, when that gets planted? Okay. Okay. That was pretty succinct, Aaron. Good, good job. There's a deterioration as that seed that's hard and well-formed, maybe about, I don't know, uh, three-sixteenths of an inch long, a quarter of an inch long, five-sixteenths of an inch long, is a hard seed. And as it comes in contact with moist soil and there is a germ that's living within it, that seed, the case of that seed begins to deteriorate. And how did you say it? A root goes down and a plant goes up. Well said. 
that seed takes on a different form than it had. That seed in some ways, and I think we can say it dies to itself, it dies to take on a new form and a new life. In this passage of Scripture, I think it's particularly talking about Jesus and him prophesying that he himself must die and that this part of death is what's going to bring new life. But then he goes on, is it verse 25? He that loseth his life shall, he that hate, loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. There is a sense that all of us, if we would be fruitful, must fall into the ground and die. And it's in that death, in that losing of our own identity, that we have a chance to become fruitful. When we plant a kernel of wheat, it's well-formed, it's dry. But as Aaron says, it encounters that moisture, as we were saying, encounters that moisture, that germination. It begins and it's, it comes in a new type of life. Okay, help me, this is Bible school, we can talk. Let's actually look just a little bit more. It's in a death cycle that that life is lost, okay? Uh, humility and brokenness makes fruitfulness possible in our lives. Pride and self-preservation stand in the way of being fruitful. If that kernel of wheat says, I'm not going to change, I'm going to remain hard, I'm not going to move, I'm not going to budge, that kernel of wheat will never be part of a field that's going to make 70 bushels to an acre uh, in, that, in that crop. It says that decomposes as that takes on a form of death that it becomes life. Do you have a thought on that real quickly? Okay, it's a transition, a superseding life. In some ways, it could almost be a, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to spend all evening discussing this. But in some ways, a type of the new birth. It, it takes on a new form, and then it becomes, in in a useful way. The resurrection. Okay. You know, as individuals, we tend to be self-sufficient. We tend to be proud. We have our agendas. We have our goals. It's about me. We want to look good. We want to be the hero of the story. We don't mind if the story has a hero as long as it's me. We orchestrate the scenarios. We think we see where we fit into the stories. You know, we often find it easy to identify pride in other people. Boy, that man is so full of himself, it's just disgusting. It's a little harder, seems to me, when the pride is in, in ourselves. You know, some of life's most useful men are some of those men that have been tried by fire. And they've come forth on the other side and come forth as gold. And God has been able to use them in a marvelous way in his kingdom. You know, I've often thought of this. A person can have many faults and weaknesses. But if he's a truly humble man, it's easy to overlook his faults. And you know, on the flip side, the converse has a lot of truth too. A person may have many strengths and gifts, but if he's a proud man, it's pretty hard to see and to appreciate those gifts. It's part of that upside down kingdom that Jesus taught us about. You know, hard times are a fact of life. How many of you have experienced hard times? How many of you have experienced really hard times? How many of you have experienced hard times recently? A few honest people here. You know, life is full of difficulties. Hard times are a fact of life. We all face them. Those experiences can make us better. They can make us bitter. You know, it's that same boiling water softens a potato and hardens an egg. That same grain of sand can form a beautiful pearl inside an oyster and in the paw of a dog it can fester, become full of pus.
You know, God works on us. How many of you that, that have had hard experiences, how many of you think brokenness is cool, it's a lot of fun? No takers. You know, it's a painful process, but it's in that process that God can work and that God can bring forth fruit, new life, transition, when we die to ourselves. Well, there's different ways that we could look at, uh, at uh, the subject of the fruitful garden. I'm here in Lancaster County with these Kaufmans around me with their orchards and whatever. Relax, I'm not going to try to tell you how to do your orchards or how to prune your trees or whatever. For a basis this evening, I'd like to look at the parable of the sower. Uh, the parable of the orchard, there's some tremendous things in those parables as well. Uh, but you would know so much more about that than I do. I, I would be lost very soon, I think. Mark 4, cutting in at verse 3. I think we'll stand again and read that passage. To get, I'll, I'll read it while you stand. <clears throat> it's a familiar parable. I'm going to read it quickly. I'll try to read it clearly so you can understand and follow. Uh, not a lot of comments as we run through it the first time. Matthew 4, verse 3. Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow, and it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some an hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. It's like, what, what do you mean by this? <clears throat> and he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside, where the word is sown. When they have heard, Satan cometh immediately, and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. Then these are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the world's sake, immediately they are offended." And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. It's a familiar story. Let's identify just a few parts of this, of this parable. <clears throat> Who is the farmer? Don't be afraid of giving the wrong answer. I think there's even a couple of right answers on this one, maybe. Who's? Christ, okay. Other ideas. Evangelists. Who else? We are. I think you're all right. <laughs> this can be God. It can be Christ. Uh, it can be any one of us. It can be a pastor. It can be an evangelist. But people who are presenting the gospel, sowing the seed, any of us. Uh, what is the seed? The Word of God. I think uh, Luke says the Word of God. Matthew, the Word of the Kingdom. Okay, the Word of God. The gospel message, maybe. Okay. And what is the soil? People that hear. Okay. People's hearts. Any of us. Actually, any of all humanity. 
right? In Nebraska, there's different types of soil, right? Is there different, uh, a lot of different soil types here in Lancaster, or is it just all good, deep, and black? <laughs> you throw the seeds out and jump out of the way so nobody gets hurt. <laughs> uh, we have different soils in Kansas, different types of soils. And it's not uh, really unthinkable at all that these descriptions that Jesus was giving in this parable would have been something that the people in, in, uh, in Palestine could have related to. You may sit down. <clears throat> I will move quickly through a bunch of points and uh, ask for your prayers that everything would come together well. Uh, uh, with your help, I think, that, and, and God's help, that we'll, it will be a good evening together. But I feel just a little disorganized, and I, I trust that uh, you, will, you will stay with me. To harvest, you must plant. Fair enough? Simple enough? Okay. Boy, I'm going to have a big harvest. Well, when are you going to plant? You mean I need to plant something? <laughs> to harvest, you must plant. You know, there was a man that farmed the farm just adjacent to me. <clears throat> he was very slow about doing his farm work. He actually lived a distance away, and that was part of the complication, I think. it was uh, He had farm ground that was closer to where he lived, and this was quite a ways away. Others would be preparing the soil, working the ground, while Bill was nowhere around. Often, long after everybody else was done planting, Bill would come around with his drill, and he'd plant his wheat. When it was time to harvest, the rest of the farmers may have all had their combines put away when Bill showed up to cut his wheat. You know, Bill didn't have very good crops, even though the ground he farmed had fairly good soil. If you want to harvest, you need to plant. You know, there's many ways that the gospel seed is planted, and we want to look at some of that, and I think we'll kind of be weaving back and forth. Uh, what are ways, actually, I'll just ask for some of your input real quickly. What are ways that the gospel seed can be planted, and then we want to to look at some of these in more depth. Someone said by the evangelist, it can be by a preacher declaring the word. Amos. Showing love. Okay. Gospel tracts. By example. It can be by our spoken word. There's a lot of ways that we can, uh, we can sow the seed. Uh, by our example, who said that? Was that you, Steve? By our examples, uh, do people see you as a kind person, a person who genuinely cares about you, a person who loves them, a person who is genuinely interested in them? You know, in general, people aren't drawn to Christianity by force. Uh, it's genuine love, often but accompanied by a meek and quiet spirit that draws people to Christ. Many times our actions speak much louder than our words. You know, if we say one thing and do another, people will be confused and will not likely accept the gospel. It's so important that our lives are consistent and they match up with what we profess that our lives back that up. Exactly. Wonderful. That was a way, though it was a very painful, painful thing for those families involved, but that there could be a testimony and a witness saying uh, to God. And I want to talk about soil preparation some, and some of these things may be direct sowing, and some of them may be a, a part of the preparing of the soil. Uh, we had an older pastor, some of you would have known him at, uh, in our church. He was one who was very great about directing conversations toward the things of the Lord. My, that was a nice rain that the Lord sent us. 
or the Lord protected us from accident or, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, <clears throat> it was a wonderful, wonderful way of, of sharing uh, uh, a good word for the Lord that drew people's attention to them. You know, some people choose to have a Bible verse printed on their checks. I think that can work both ways. It can help to remind the person that you're writing that check to that, uh, you know, trust in the Lord or the Lord is my shepherd or whatever your message is that you have on your check. And it can actually be kind of a good little helper to us. It's going to be pretty hard to cheat a guy on a deal when you whip out your check <laughs> and say, uh, uh, Jesus saves here or whatever. The guy might say, wow, he saved a bunch, but Jesus didn't have anything to do with that negotiation. <laughs> uh, there's a ministry in vi visiting sick people in the hospital. Incidentally, this, this bill, that neighbor, about my age, he got some, some disease, some sickness, and he was in the hospital. I wasn't at all confident about his uh, spiritual condition. You know what? I need to go visit him. I need to talk to him about his, his soul. There's a, there's a uh, tremendous opportunity in that kind of thing. <clears throat> Some people pray specifically before they go to town. Lord, give me an opportunity to share your love, to share something of you with someone else. We sow seeds in relationships with our neighbors. I won't necessarily be quoting a lot of verses. I won't necessarily always have conversations that are directed to the things of the Lord. But if I have time when I see a neighbor now and again to stop and we roll down our windows and we talk across those two open windows, he knows that I care about him enough to visit. I care about him. He cares about me. We can have some good interchange. You know, if I've taken advantage of that neighbor in a business deal, he's not going to be apt to look to me when he runs into spiritual difficulties or spiritual uh, needs. If I stray a little bit on his side of the fence line when we're cutting wheat, uh, that's not going to work that well. If my cattle get out and trample his crops, those aren't going to be things that are building bridges. <clears throat> In sowing the seed, it's important that our lives are consistent and that what we do matches what we say. There's a legend, and I don't know how well maybe some of you school teachers can confirm or affirm this, about this man, Johnny Chapman, Johnny Appleseed, that got apple seeds at the, at the cider presses in the east, and he went west and planted apple trees or apple orchards or whatever. I don't know how much of that's true and how much of it's legend. But it's an interesting concept. As we go, as God's children, plant the seed. As we go, plant the seed. Uh, we hopefully, with our neighbors, can reach out in ways that are redemptive, ways that draw people's minds to the things of the Lord. We had elderly neighbors uh, I live maybe four or five miles away. I don't know. And uh, they were both getting up in years and not in particularly good health. Our daughter, Christy, who's with you now, uh, actually cleaned house for them some. And they had a small pasture, and I would often take cattle over there. She liked to see young calves and, uh, and that kind of thing. But they were, you know, older people, and uh, I would sometimes sit there in front of the house, and we'd just visit it was winter or cold, it might be inside in the house. We talked about a lot of different things. Remember one time we were talking about, she was, it was, must have been before the election in 2016, and she was kind of fishing for how we feel about that. It gives an opportunity to share about the two kingdom concepts and how we feel about some of those things. And as she was kind of expressing herself, I didn't sense just a real strong uh, affinity for Christianity and the things of the Lord. Well, I think, Lowell, that, you know, if we live by the Ten Commandments, that's good enough or something like that. Anyway, <clears throat> we had a nice relationship. 
Christy, they loved having her come to the house and, and help them there. And uh, one day we get a phone call. Judy answered the phone, I think. Hello? Hello? Oh, hello, Dan. Well, how are you doing? And uh, how are things going? Not good. Jan is in the hospital. And the doctor says she's not going to make it. Well, do you want us to come out? Yeah, sure, we'll come out. And, uh, and uh, we went, and Christy happened to be home at the time, and Christy and uh, Judy went, and it was like Dan really wanted someone to go in and talk with Jan. Jan was there on her hospital bed. On oxygen, as I recall, with this is before COVID, but with a like a plexiglass shield, and uh, uh, she was not doing well. And in that conversation, Judy asked about her faith, something about, "Are you trusting Jesus?" And very strongly, she affirmed that she is. She was. We were able to pray with her, and we were able to have a, a wonderful, I mean, a time of, of interaction, interchange there. Apparently, the chaplain at the hospital had talked to her before that, but it was like her husband was really concerned about her. And when Judy came out and he heard that testimony, it was like there was a huge relief. At the time when Judy was in there, he asked, Lowell, are you a pastor? Would you consent to being in charge or taking... Uh, part in this memorial service. Dan, for you, I would be glad to. Several days later, she died. I don't remember exactly the chronology. I met with the family at the, at the funeral home, trying to help plan people that basically hadn't been plugged into church, a family that was kind of here, there, or wherever. But God directed. Uh, Christy and others sang at the funeral. I had an opportunity to preach there, and I could preach the gospel in kind of a, a way to some of my neighbors and friends, their neighbors and friends. Those things that we built over the years opened the door that in that time of need that God could minister and that God could use us for his glory. Soil preparation <clears throat> will affect the harvest. Seeds don't germinate in a poor seed bed or don't germinate well in a poor seed bed. And there's things that we can do as the farmer, as the husbandman, there's things that the Holy Spirit does in the preparation of that soil. Uh, <clears throat> You know, when someone wait, makes us wait at a place of business or maybe treats us brusquely, bris, uh, treats us unkindly, is very grown up with us or whatever, we can be kind of peeved and we can kind of reflect and project that back on them. Or we can be gracious. In some of those ways, I think, we help to prepare the soil of their hearts. As Christians, we partner with the Holy Spirit in the soil preparation for these people for when the gospel message can come. I want to look just briefly at the hindrances kind of laid out in this, uh, in this parable. What are hindrances to having this seed take root and to, to grow well? The seed by the wayside. Some years ago, I was seeding alfalfa. And alfalfa is an expensive crop, and an ex expensive seed, and it's a very small seed. Did you, you raised alfalfa? Yeah, actually, you've sold some Kansas alfalfa seed here, I think. But anyway, uh, as I was finishing the, the field, as I recall, I was pulling out on the roadway there. And I noticed after I was going that... Uh, the mechanism on the drill had not disengaged. And I kept on planting this expensive seed right down on one of those Kansas roads. What do you think that was? A good crop, Glenn? <laughs> not likely. 
You know, I could have planted seed that cost five, six, seven dollars a pound, and it wouldn't have made a hoot of difference. That road was not made to raise a good crop. Seed by the wayside. You know, there's some people that say what we will, do what we will. It's just like there is not an openness, not a spiritual component, a spiritual perception, a spiritual openness. And we can pray for the Holy Spirit to continue to work in their lives. But uh, hard soil, many people are rejecting the gospel. There's just not a whole lot you can do with a drill that's putting seed down on the road. I recall a, new, a young man that we knew quite well. He interacted with us. In fact, he lived with us for a while, worked with me in construction. And kind of out of the blue all at once, he sought a relationship with a woman. And it appeared that that relationship pretty quickly became physical and, uh, and carnal. And as Judy was visiting with this young man later, it was like he was kind of confused. He didn't really know what all he believed about Christianity and about faith anymore. You know, if a person is living in known sin, he's in a very poor position to be hearing from God. You know, if you've hardened your heart by disobedience, then it's kind of a tall order to expect God's Holy Spirit to, to direct you and to lead you. You know, we have people that are excited about things, people who excitedly receive the gospel. It's like that shallow soil on the stony ground, but it doesn't last. I talked, I forget it was the last evening, which of the evenings that I think sometimes we short sell or long sell the salvation experience. That salvation in many ways is a long series of saying yes to Jesus. And we kind of oversimplify it. I think if we say you walk down that sawdust trail, your troubles are over. The stony ground. The seed choked out by thorns and thistles. There are so many things clamoring for our attention today. We have things from technology that can bombard our lives in ways that our parents and grandparents could only have dreamed about. We have so many things. And not only bad things, we have a lot of neutral things. And it can even be your work that is that thorn and thistles that chokes out our lives and doesn't leave us uh, open and attuned to the things of God. Cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. You know, there's a kind of this thought that if some way you could just get a hold of a whole bunch of riches, how your troubles would be over. Some years ago, I don't know how many years ago, the, there was a group of workers in a Nebraska packing plant that won, I think, the largest Powerball settlement to date. They'd gone together and bought some tickets or something. I don't even know how all of that works. But I think it was like a $365 million pot you know what? I pitied those people. You follow the life story of a lot of those folks. The deceitfulness of riches. I think three of them quit their jobs, retired. If you follow the lifelines of people who won the lottery, they're often a really, really sad life story. Many, many people let things stand between them and God. I think we talked to the rich young ruler in one of the earlier sessions. The cost was too big for him. It wasn't a price that he was willing to pay. You know, are you about ready for some good news? That story doesn't end there. What about the fruitful plant? That plant that bore, what does it say in this passage, some 40-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Uh, wheat, round figures, we can plant uh, a bushel an acre. And our climate is different out there. Our rainfall is different. 
but in a perfect situation, sometimes we can get up to 60 or 70 bushels an acre, maybe even 80 in a real extreme situation, maybe up to 100 in a, in a really, really extreme situation. And it's a joy to be driving a combine through a field and see that wheat come in there and realize that God has blessed in a similar way, in a much more beautiful way. It's a blessing to see when God is giving uh, increase to his word as it goes out. <clears throat> I have had the opportunity over the years of traveling to India uh, different times, I, uh, quite a few times over the years. India is a very dark land in many ways. Uh, population now of what, 1.26 billion or something like that. And uh, <clears throat> I remember an experience we had one time where our host took us back. And it was broad daylight, as I recall, bright sun. And I experienced some real darkness. <laughs> we went up to a Hindu temple, Hindu shrine, a place where people went to, uh, uh, some of them would even offer their hair as a sacrifice, would shave their heads in that uh, rite of, of sacrifice. Just a darkness that kind of permeated that bright, bright day. What do you think? The light of the gospel coming to a place like that this is mathematics. It's not realistic, we wouldn't say, unless by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. But do you think if each person would capture the vision of reaching out and saying, I'm going to set a goal, I'm going to reach one person for Christ. Remember visiting a pastor in South India. He was talking about his personal modus operandi. He worked in the tea fields, I think, in South uh, India in Kerala State. And he said, I had a goal to talk to one person every day about Christ or about the things of God. You know, a few times it wouldn't work. It was rainy, the weather was inclement or whatever, and he wasn't able to do it. But then he tried to make up by talking to more people when he had another chance. And he had a tremendous ministry. Many people that had been impacted by his witness and his testimony. How many of you think it would be physically possible in a lifetime if every believer in India, very, very, very small minority, perhaps 2% of the population, would win one soul to Christ in a year's time? Do you think in a year's time, if that would continue, that all of India could be won mathematically to Christ? How about seven years. If there's 2% year one, 4% year two, 8% year three, 16% year four, 32% year five, 64% year six, 128% maybe throw in Pakistan or Bangladesh <laughs> year seven. Mathematically, I realize that's not realistically in, in a whole lot of different uh, fronts, but just to get your mind thinking, what is the potential? What about the U.S.? That might start with about, I don't know what the percentages are, the people that are nominally, nominally Christian here. Planting is a united effort. 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of the united effort. You know, evidently there was some fighting among the Corinthians. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And here's Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he, it's like he's saying, relax. <laughs> it's not about me, it's not about Apollos. And it's like, I'm not hogging any glory here. It actually isn't about either one of us, but it's about God who gives the increase. And it may be something that John says one day. It may be something that Norman says in a subsequent con conversation. It may be something that someone that uh, Amos is helping alongside the road, a combined effort that eventually brings people to open their hearts and their minds to the things of the Lord. Fruit is the result of a growing Christian. 
Now, I don't know if you ever imagine that uh, plants or animals visit with each other, but let's just say, just for something, this little exercise, that there's a couple tomato plants in your garden and they're visiting with each other. And the one tomato talks to the other one and says, what are you going to be doing today? And the other tomato says, I'm going to make a tomato. Okay. And so, uh, well, uh, what kind of a tomato are you thinking of? He says, I'm going to make a big red slicing tomato. That's what the gardener likes. And uh, <clears throat> so that tomato sets out to try to, I don't know how, how it would do it, but to, to create a tomato, okay? <laughs> and he's going to make a big tasty tomato. What's the problem with that picture? You think that's how it works? By self-effort, by the tomatoes having a discussion in the garden? I don't think that's how it works. Fruit is the natural result of a healthy plant. Fruit happens. I think sometimes we get that thing confused. I remember being in a service already where there was a lot of emphasis on the manifestation gifts and was very uncomfortable. You know, it is easy to force or to manufacture or to <laughs> posture about the, uh, some of the manifestation gifts of the Spirit. But it's pretty hard to manufacture love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, goodness, meekness, temperance, day after day on a consistent basis. Fruit happens if the plant is healthy. You know, fruit produces after its kind. You plant tomatoes, you get tomatoes, right? Some of the hybridization can mess some of that up, that you don't plant the, the seed from the, from the crop. Uh, <clears throat> in that passage in John 3, we referred to it the other night, I referred to it maybe briefly already today, I'm not sure, but when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, verse 5 and 6, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. How many of you have ever struggled with your identity? Okay. I'm a fisher, and I wish I would have been a Stolzfus, or I'm a Stolzfus, or a Lap, or a, what are your names here, a Zook, or, you know, whatever the situation is. I always am tied with so-and-so ancestor. I can't live on my own. And, you know, some of those things, I mean, there's just a lot of things. We can struggle with our identity, okay? Something kind of excited, exciting occurred to me as I was looking at this with this thought. You know, <clears throat> we can struggle with our old carnal nature, our millerness or Miller Freundschaft, or whatever the situation is. The carnal nature that we've been born with. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, I know I'm going to be treading into a little bit of scary territory here, but that new birth process, don't, don't let me derail you too bad, but is that a bit like a genetic overwrite? <laughs> on our DNA, that we become genetically modified. Those of us that, in our carnality, were bringing forth the fruits of darkness, as it says in John 15, I think, in the living, created to go and produce lovely fruit always. You know, that's pretty exciting. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And that bell is a problem. <laughs> uh, the runway is coming up and we're not leveled out very well. Let's see.
I want to talk just in closing. I'm going to move there about things that can hinder the production in our gardens. Let me tell a little story. The farm we live on had a set of buildings, a farmstead. It's fairly typical. Out behind what used to be the hog barn on that farmstead, out in the field just a little ways was a tree or was actually maybe a clump of trees. And uh, in Kansas, we're not used to farming around trees. There's not that many trees to start with, and so you don't like to farm around them. There's a problem with, those, with trees in a place like that. <clears throat> the trees take moisture. They take nutrients from what we would like to... And they actually take, you know, a, a small footprint of the farm itself. So that field, you can't grow wheat in that, in that patch. Not only that, it's kind of... If you're coming around with a combine, maybe you have an auger out, you can catch that thing up on that tree. It's just really unhandy. If you're pulling a harrow behind a v, uh, behind an implement, you can reach in underneath there. Underneath that tree, there was cheat grass growing. I don't know if you have cheat grass or not here, but it's something with a similar life cycle to wheat. But it's really can be pretty invasive and really get in there. You might remember cheat grass from the Midwest. Uh, and you can drag that seed off across the field and you're just kind of, you're, you're just making the problem worse. There's just a lot of ways that those trees were unhandy. When after we bought the place, at some time I had an excavator out. I want you to go out there and get those trees out. I don't remember, it was a clump of two or three. And he worked quite a while and there was quite a root ball that came out. There was a major, major thing till he got those trees out. But there was something so beautiful after we had that leveled over, I could farm straight across there. I didn't have to worry. I didn't have to worry about the cheat grass growing there. I had restored that thing to fruitfulness. And it had been there for years, and it probably took him a half an hour to dig them out. You know, there's spiritual parallels. Hebrews talks about a root of bitterness that springs up and troubles you. I'm not sure of all of the implications of the root of bitterness. He was talking about Esau, I think. Now he'd lost his birthright. And how it sprang up and troubled him. And it was like it just strangled his usefulness. Usefulness and this root of bitterness. This root that was taking and robbing the... the uh, robbing that field of its fruitfulness. You know, we got it out, and it should have come out a long, long time ago. But we didn't. You know, the elm tree starts out with a little bitty seed about the size of a shirt button. But give it a little time, and it can grow into a tree 40 feet tall with roots that are deeply entrenched in the ground. Those bitternesses in our lives and start out like little seedlings. And those little seedlings, if they're left to nurture and grow, can grow into huge trees. They can steal our peace. They can steal our nutrients. They can steal our life. And they can harbor a lot of other things around it. Ironically, we protect those trees. We protect those roots oftentimes. We have something to hang our problems on. We have something to harbor our injustices with. You know, in the past, we've had things that have been hard things in our life. And I think we've harbored injustices. There's things we should have done to just get rid of those things. Ephesians 4, verse 26, I think it is, where it says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. That sun goes down every day. In Kansas, we often actually see it. And uh, <clears throat> I think he's saying there, stay up to date. If we would have, at the start, with those elm trees, reached down between our thumb and 
forefinger, we could have pulled up a half a dozen of those trees at once. After all those years, it took an excavator, it took a loader, it took a tractor to get those trees out. You know, <clears throat> that's bad enough. But there's something even a little more sobering about that, I think. As we harbor injustice and unforgiveness, if you look at Matthew 6, you look at the Lord's Prayer, it seems that our ability... Are you Nathan? Would you go to that chair right behind you? I want to do a quick object lesson with you. Reach under that chair and see if you can find a couple of things. Nathan, are you a pretty good athlete? Okay, you look like it. Okay, I like, I like uh, sports too. So I want you to hold that ball just with one hand. Hold it up so the people can see it. Okay, great. Now, Nathan, I want you to hold that ball. You're doing good. What I want you to do yet quickly, and we're running out of time, and I'm sorry, but uh, I want you to take either of these balls first, and I want to hold, you have hold both of these balls out there and show those people how you do it. With one hand, though. Just one hand. Huh? Like, now just one right on top of the other. Just, you know, there. That's right. Kind of tough, isn't it? Thank you. You did a good job. I can't do it either. <laughs> it seems to me the Lord has made our hands big enough to either hold on to his forgiveness or to hold on to our grudge, but not big enough to hold on to both. For two reasons, let's free those roots of bitterness that are trying to strangle the growth in our lives. First reason, life is too short to hold grudges. Reason number two, eternity is far too long to have held them. Thank you.